Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Maximus Colin Radio Show 34. Uh, we had a uh, you know great discussion today, a weekly unpopular opinion about um, how the best uh, way of showing self-love as a man is actually to start with discipline. Uh, and then we had a great uh, series of questions. I was talking about uh, another ineffective herbal supplement uh, called Chilajit. Doesn't do much for testosterone. Um, we talked about um, uh, internal family systems as a type of psychotherapy, um, understanding what parts of your personality or character you can accept versus what parts that you can uh, change. Uh, talked about the classic Stephen Covey book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, um, and how as a entrepreneur or founder, you can find investors that are more aligned with your values. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Cam. Welcome to Maximus Live episode 34. It's amazing how many of uh, these we've gone through by being really consistent about our Thursday six o'clock episodes. So welcome to everyone who's joining us from Instagram Live, Twitch, our most loyal users on Discord, including our customers, um, and also Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces. So this week's uh, weekly unpopular opinion is that um, the best way that a man can show self-love is actually by having high demands of himself. So as opposed to Jocko Willenick's opinion that dis discipline equals freedom, my opinion is discipline equals self-love. So when you hear the connotation of self-love, especially as a masculine man, it sounds very hippie or squishy, uh, and I think it turns a lot of guys off, even though I would argue it's actually one of the most critical elements of psychology. Um, I actually talk about radical acceptance and radical responsibility as almost like the left and right hand of psychology and radical acceptance is essentially a form of self-love. But I think that that word, unfortunately, has a very emasculating connotation. So guys don't really know what to do with it. They understand the concept that you should love yourself, but what does that actually mean and how does that, how do you actually apply that uh, in a way? So in order to best explain this, I wanna talk uh, about kind of a matrix um, from parenting, the parenting literature, that is very useful. So why don't we talk about that and we can in fact diagram it and explain it a little bit. So um, if you think about two different axes that are really important in order to be an effective parent, the one axis is how demanding you are or what I call sort of authority, right? So a high demanding parent expects a lot out of their child and undemanding parent expects very little of their child. The other axis is supportiveness, right? Or what I call affection. So uh, a supportive parent is very accepting and kind of child-centered. An unsupportive parent is rejecting and is really parent-centered. It's all about them. So if you think about this two-by-two two matrix, you come up with basically four different types of parents. So let's think about the worst-case scenario, and then we'll work our way up. So if you have an undemanding and unsupportive parent, you basically have what's called the rejecting-neglecting parent. So they don't really ask much of their kids and they don't really show much love to their kids and is basically just like an absent sort of parent. Um, those kids obviously don't turn out very well. Let's talk about the other two kind of styles that are a little bit in between. So what if you have a demanding uh, parent but is unsupportive? That's called authoritarian parenting, right? So that's someone who's controlling. It's all about power. You do it because I said so. Uh, and it's, you know, my word, I don't want to hear your opinion. This is also stereotypically like the tiger parent, right? So they're like, your expectations are high, you must uh, succeed and achieve, but they're not very affectionate, don't hug a lot, don't provide a lot of physical touch, emotional intimacy. 
um, those uh, children do typically go on to become successful because being highly demanding um, does set people up for success, but they also run into a lot of psychological issues and often end up in therapy. So uh, that's not a great uh, style. The contrast, almost the extreme opposite style, is the very supportive but undemanding parent. Think about a kid, like a, a parent who sends their child to sort of Montessori school. There's no grades, there's no evaluation, there's no standards. Um, and this is not a knock on Montessori, but I'm just sort of showing the kind of the logical extreme. If you, if you apply that to home, um, you get uh, a very, what's called permissive parenting. The kid can kind of do whatever he wants. Uh, she could be eating ice cream for breakfast and the parent doesn't say no. So the relationship's really indulgent, um, is very low in control. Um, and those kids basically don't learn any self-discipline. Um, they don't have as much, uh, you know, the, the typical sort of a neuroticism that you see with the authoritarian parenting. Um, but on the other hand, you know, they don't really turn out to be very effective adults. The best combination, obviously, is a parent who's high in demandingness and high in supportiveness. So that's what's called authoritative as opposed to authoritarian parenting. So that uh, relationship is reciprocal. It's not the parent that's being controlling. It's not the child that's in charge. It's bi-directional. And you're able to communicate back and forth. And those kids turn out the best. They, they turn out to be both highly skilled, competent adults, but ones that have good emotional regulation uh, and are, you know, most likely to do well psychologically. That framework, although you might be asking, okay, what does this have to do with being a man? What does this have to do with self-love? This framework for parenting, I think, is the same exact framework to be a great leader. And I, that includes being a leader of other people, but it also means being a great leader of yourself. And so how you treat yourself is, in, if you will, your inner child, if we're, if we're uh, able to use that phrase, is no different than you treat, quite frankly, your, your literal child. So when we talk about sort of self-love, um, I think people associate it with that, the affection side of the matrix that I was uh, trying to describe. And obviously that's something that makes sense that you're gonna give to your son and daughter. You need to show love. I think even masculine guys acknowledge the importance of showing love uh, emotionally and physically. Um, but when you apply it to yourself, it seems sort of self-indulgent. Like, like I understand hugging my son or daughter, but um, I can't hug myself. Uh, what am I supposed to do? Like uh, uh, lavish praise on myself. I think it turns a lot of guys off. So what I think is a more helpful approach is less about sort of lavishing yourself with affection and support and more about not punishing yourself actually with shame or guilt whenever you mess up. And this is something that guys are actually uniformly terrible at. They beat themselves up whenever they fall short, whenever they fail. And the problem with that, of course, is it results in very typical depression, anxiety, and negative spirals of behavior. So what I would argue is if you want to provide yourself with self-love or affection support, just before you even try to introduce that, just stop the negative uh, part of the emotion, meaning stop the bad habit of punishing yourself and seeing failure um, and rather than punishing yourself, seeing failure with more of a non-judgmental curiosity, right? So I have a whole system called the Keystone Habit, which lets you plan ahead for the next four hours in terms of what you're going to do. And then you reflect back on it non-judgmentally. The point is not to beat yourself up because you procrastinated or you didn't get exactly as much done, but to kind of look at it and be like, all right, I said I was going to do this. I didn't end up doing it. I wonder why. What were the barriers? What got in the way? And how can I... Uh, you know, with an air of curiosity kind of solve this problem. 
So I think that's really important. And then only once that's established can the actual affection and support begin. Now there's two types that I think are really important. The first is what I call unconditional positive regard. This obviously Carl comes from humanistic psychology. If you've ever read Carl Rogers, um, and the idea here is that basically affirming that you're a man of worth and that you deserve at least a dignity, right? No matter how messed up your life is, you may be literally a drug addict, a social media addict, or you're failing in your terms of your responsibilities and you know you need to clean up your life. But even regardless of that, you still as a human being on a fundamental level deserve dignity and respect. I think all, all, all people do. So that's really important so that you have some foundation, some baseline of self-worth that you don't feel like you're nothing. You don't feel like you're zero and you don't feel like you're worthless because if you're in that state, uh, it's going to be very hard to be motivated to do anything. Now, on top of that foundation of unconditional positive regard is there is a place for conditional positive regard, meaning providing praise when you do things right, right? Now, this should really be seen as a bonus, not a requirement to receive praise. Because remember, you are providing yourself with unconditional positive regard anyway, just by being alive, right? But when you do get up on time, when you do go to the gym, when you do eat right, when you do uh, follow through on your word, it is important that you reward yourself just as you would reward you know, uh, a child. Uh, for good behavior and that you're making progress towards your goals. I think it's obvious, you know, like if you've literally trained a dog, right? You reward good behavior. And we know that reward works generally better than punishment with a few exceptions. Um, and so you should provide reward and praise for yourself when you do things right. Now, so that was the um, uh, affectionate part of the spectrum. What about the demanding um, or the authority part of the spectrum? So in order to be an authoritative parent, a complete robust parent, you have to not only provide affection, but you have to provide that authority. And my thesis is, in fact, you can only be as demanding of yourself as much as you love yourself, right? So if you, if you grade yourself on like, let's say a zero to 10 scale in terms of how demanding you are, uh, in terms of your author, author, um, authority and how uh, supportive or affectionate you are, if you are only a five out of 10, in terms of the affection and support that you provide yourself, I don't think you can demand yourself more than five out of 10 either. Because what's gonna happen is if your demandingness exceeds your affection, that's when the neuroticism comes out because you're gonna start to, to uh, when you start to fail and not meet your goals, you're gonna beat yourself up and that's gonna result in that sort of negative spiral of behavior. So if you want to have 10 out of 10 standards, if you wanna have high goals and be a very high achiever, and, and have that be a 10 out of 10 in terms of your ambition in life, your, your affection and support and self-love better be a 10 out of 10 as well because that's the only way that you can continue to push as hard as a lot of like high achieving people do. And I work with CEOs and VCs in my private practice. You gotta have a incredibly high sense of self-worth, self-confidence and self-love in order to sustain that. Right, so I think it's that's the most important principle from my kind of talk today. You can only be as demanding of yourself as much as you love yourself. Otherwise, you end up as a tiger parent, right? You're you're that typical strict but cold parent, and that results in procrastination and oftentimes addiction, as I've seen in a lot of my clients. So, now how do you how do you put this into practice? In this era, I think it's really rare to be kind of a man of your word, not just when it comes to other people, but I always talk about how important it is to keep your own word to yourself, 
right? And so when you set goals for yourself or you set standards for yourself, make sure that they're achievable, right? So make sure they're behavioral, meaning you can measure them, you can observe them, make it so that they're, it's immediately achievable, meaning it's something you can do in the next day, day or so, uh, not some lofty goal that's 10 years out. And how do you, how do you measure progress towards that? And make sure that it's about 80% achievable, as I like to say. So there's an 80% likelihood that you're actually going to do what you said you're going to do today and that you're relatively confident that you can achieve it. Now, after that, you calibrate up or, up or down depending on your success. If you failed, you need to lower your, your bar, lower your goal. If you succeeded, you can always increase it over time. So it's not to that you're aiming low with 80% and that you shouldn't have a big, hairy, audacious goal, uh, as is discussed in the book, Good to Great, but you want to not have too many strings of failure because people just give up and quit when they're failing too much. So on that note, I think it's very important, like I said, to equate discipline with self-love. So I actually, um, and I think this is because it's very hard for guys to provide that sort of affection and support to themselves. So um, the what I do instead with guys that feel a little bit of opposition to that, I say, forget about the affection for the time being, just focus on the discipline. Because I think the most loving act that you can do for yourself is less affectionate and it's actually more behavioral in terms of keeping your word and keeping your personal integrity. That's the best way, honestly, that a man can love himself is to be true to his word. So the if I could almost like give you a sequential order of actionable advice about how to put this into practice. If self-love is difficult or that feels kind of weird to you, start easy. So step number one, just stop beating yourself up for failures, right? So stopping the punishment, stopping the shame, stopping the guilt is self-love. You don't even, it doesn't even need to be touchy-feely. It's just stop being punitive, right? If you do that, you're going to go a long way. Number two, you need to iterate and obviously change some of the things that you're doing wrong, but you got to do it with more of a non-judgmental curiosity, right? And when you do it as almost like an objective third-party person with like a teacher or a coach that's watching you, they're not going to be as emotionally involved as you, um, then you're much more likely to change because you're not in that guilt-shame cycle that most people fall into. Step number three, affirm your unconditional self-worth that no matter how shitty your life is, no matter how much you're letting other people down and you feel like a zero, you have some foundational self-worth that is not up for grabs. It's not up for debate. You have self-worth as a human being. Uh, and then obviously, if you are doing well, uh, give yourself a little bit of praise and, and reward for meeting your goals along the way. Uh, sorry, let me skip, I skipped ahead there. Number four, demand that you keep your promises to yourself. So this is the discipline part. So when you make a commitment to yourself, like saying, I'm going to go to the gym today, you have to follow through on that. Um, and that's the best way that you can love yourself. And then finally, when you successfully do, obviously lavish yourself with a little bit of praise, pat yourself on the back, feel good about yourself, uh, you know, text your homies and, 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 and tell them that you went to the gym and, and hopefully they'll, they'll share in that praise too. And we obviously try to do that as a community that you're not doing this by yourself. That's why we have social accountability groups so that when people are trying to make health behavior changes, it's not just by themselves that there's a group or community or band of brothers that provides them with that praise as well. And, and I think guys honestly under, uh, estimate how, how much praise affects us. All of us, you know, whether, you know, you're, you're women or men were, you know, told you're a good boy or a good girl from your parent, uh, growing up. And, and that is, 
emotionally transformative to sort of be blessed, if you will, by your parents and, and to receive that praise. And quite frankly, a lot of what we do is, is constantly in the seek of praise. Now, as long as that's done in a values aligned way, uh, then I think it's fantastic. So uh, long story short, the best way that a man can practice self-love, in my opinion, is actually to start with discipline. And if you uh, get that side of the equation right, uh, then I think you can go really far and then do a lot of more work later on in terms of the affection and support. So uh, with that being said, let's get into questions. What is your opinion on internal family systems? Yeah, great question. So um, for those who are not familiar, internal family systems is a particular type of psychotherapy um, that kind of believes in the concepts of multiple selves that as, as opposed to being, um, you know, like one person or one entity, as a lot of people like to think of themselves, it, it kind of posits a more robust framework of thinking about there's different parts of you, which actually does kind of make sense intuitively, right? We're not talking about like multiple personalities, but we kind of gave the example of the gym earlier in the sense of there's a lot of people who say they're going to go to the gym and they don't end up doing it. Now, there's obviously a part of you that does want to go to the gym, right? That came up with that goal in the first place, realizes all the potential health benefits. And there's another part of you that maybe is resisting that because they don't want to feel pain or strain or discomfort. Maybe that's a little bit more of that inner child as we were talking about. And these sort of different parts can, can, can be in conflict. And particularly when we sort of banish, um, you know, those parts of ourselves, uh, you know, I think there can be sort of conflicts that arise. So um, I think it's an interesting sort of theory. There's not as much literature on it compared to other sort of evidence-based therapies, particularly I would say the more behaviorally oriented therapies such as CBT or ACT. Uh, the, the question, the, the, um, uh, person asked, why do you promote CBT when others, no other study has shown it has better outcomes than any other form of psychotherapy? That's incorrect. It depends on what you're talking about in terms of treating what better outcomes for what, um, CBT and, uh, act and, uh, other behavioral therapies in terms of the aggregate have more positive research literature on them than let's say compared to internal family systems. So it's not to say that CBT is definitively scientifically better, but there's far more research on CBT than there is IFS. And so if you're gonna be a betting man and say, what is more likely than not based on the research evidence to be effective for the treatment of depression and anxiety, uh, I would say the research evidence points to CBT. Now that may be because there's been more funding, it's been around longer. It's not to say that it's not more effective, but the research literature certainly points in that direction. And I think we can absolutely and conclusively say for particularly the treatment of anxiety disorders, um, PTSD, specific phobia, panic disorder, OCD, an exposure-based behavioral treatment in which you're exposing people to the feared um, you know, uh, element uh, through repeated and graduated exposure is a clear evidence-based and probably the most effective component of any sort of therapy for anxiety. From my, I'm not an expert on IFS, so I'm not saying that uh, it's not done, but it's not a core part of it. And I don't think IFS is considered a behavioral treatment. So if someone has OCD, I would absolutely not recommend them to do internal family systems and talk about the different parts of themselves. Um, uh, but uh, they should do an exposure-based therapy, and then they can add a framework on top of that um, that can be helpful. Now, in my work, I, I sort of use ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy as the main psychotherapy that I both teach and practice. 
And I do think there's a component of it, which is this idea of the observer self um, that's able to see the different parts of ourselves that I would say is congruent with not only internal family systems, but with uh, more neo-Jungian uh, types of psychotherapy, including um, Robert Moore's archetype of the king, warrior, and magician lover. That was his sort of conceptualization of the different parts of ourselves, um, which uh, I oftentimes introduce and sort of work with, uh, with clients and, and talk about in my writing as well. So look, the reality is, um, I think the most important thing is to find a very skilled clinician. I think it's probably actually more important than this specific type of psychotherapy. A lot of people like to engage in almost this intellectual masturbation, arguing is IFS better than CBT, is better than ACT, is better than DBT. Um, like I said, for particular uh, disorders, you can have that debate, but I think for most people, they should just get into therapy with a good clinician, a, a well-trained doctoral level clinician, preferably. Um, and uh, that's going to be the biggest determinant of outcomes um, uh, more than anything. So uh, so yeah, I would say uh, don't lose the forest for the trees uh, in terms of um, what you're striving for uh, and, and get into too much of an academic debate about what, what therapy is best. Um, the, the skill of the clinician and your relationship and therapeutic alliance with your clinician is a far better determinant of treatment outcomes um, than some philosophical debate about the particular style. What parts of your personality slash character do you accept as just who you are and what parts do you try to change? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, uh, I would argue that um, the particular personality traits that have been empirically shown to be relatively stable over the lifespan you need to accept to some degree. And we've talked a little bit about this before in terms of the big five, right? Openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism are relatively stable over time. They are amenable somewhat to change. Um, some of the stuff smooths out just naturally over time. People just, for instance, generally become less neurotic as they age. I don't know if it's like... <laughs> Hormone levels decreasing and they, then they become more emotionally stable. Um, th that's an example. Uh, extroversion is probably the most genetic uh, and neurologically oriented of the big five. So if you're an extreme introvert, you're probably always going to be an extreme introvert. If you're extreme extrovert, you're probably always going to be an extreme extrovert. It might mellow out a little bit, but I think those are generally elements that you should accept as who you are because your preference for social activity and particularly your ability to um, you know gain or lose energy from them is probably going to be the same over time. Now you can learn to be, and we talked about this in previous shows, to be a pseudo extrovert if you're an introvert, because it's more effective, obviously, like you gotta you gotta speak in front of a large audience to learn to turn that on and develop that as a skill set. But it doesn't fundamentally change who you are. Like I said, it's a pseudo extrovert, right? You still need to recharge your batteries. So you can learn to be extroverted temporarily in a certain environment or context because it's helpful to be effective towards your personal goals or projects, but it doesn't make you an extrovert. It just makes you seem like an extrovert and it's effective to be an extrovert temporarily, but your core essence of who you are, your fundamental personality is still an introvert and you have to kind of accept that. So what's the difference between accepting and not accepting it? The difference is if you're an introvert, right, biologically speaking, 
and you try to act like an extrovert and you don't go recharge your batteries, you don't go spend time alone, you don't focus on recovery, you're gonna burn out. Versus someone who's a true extrovert, they can go out every single night and not burn out because they just gain energy from it and they're wired differently from you. That's the difference between someone who accepts it and doesn't accept it. Versus a pseudo extrovert who owns the fact that they're an introvert and accepts it says, hey look, I'm not gonna let this from stopping me in terms of being an effective teacher or speaker or going on a date. I can be extroverted, funny, charismatic, and all the things that I need to be to be effective, yet I accept who I am. And I, I, need, I can't do that every single uh, night. I need to take some times off. I need to spend some time alone. I'm gonna you know, do a little bit of reading and do a little massage, do a little recovery work because I know that I burn out easily. So you know, within an hour span of time, I can be just as effective as any extrovert, but I need more recovery time. And by the way, that same principle applies to aging. When you get older, you can lift weights uh, you know, and be just as strong as much younger men. I think the main difference, if you talk to guys in their 30s, 40s, and 50s in particular, um, is recovery. That's what changes. You can be strong, but you can't just be like, you know, lifting heavy weights on very little sleep, doing it every day, and, and pretending like your body's going to respond the same. Uh, the body's, it just takes takes more time uh, to sort of heal and recover. And I think that's true psychologically as well. So the last part of, um, you know, my answer to your question is, is, uh, the, the parts that you try to change are obviously the parts that are in need of change in terms of your efficacy towards pursuing your personal values, right? For instance, you know, there's a lot of folks who are on the autism spectrum in Silicon Valley. That's obviously a little bit more genetically and neurologically determined. So it's hard to change. Um, now, obviously, you can develop social skills and do social skills training and maybe even develop a little bit more um, cognitive empathy that may be uh, a little bit more lacking, typically, in autism spectrum disorder. However, in that particular context, I don't think it hurts uh, folks with uh, ASD. In fact, it may help, right? Professionally, you know, their, their intelligence, uh, their ability to do technical work. Um, and also, a lot of people uh, have, have the same kind of, uh, you know, condition, if you even want to call it that, uh, versus being sort of neuroatypical. Um, uh, it's not necessarily a problem. So uh, in certain contexts, you may not even need to change it because if, you know, it doesn't harm you um, and other people don't judge you sort of negatively for it because I don't have the people have the same thing or, or, or at least our allies are empathic towards it, you may not need to change it. However, if it's significantly getting in your way, right? Now you're finding, okay, great, you know, I'm on the autism spectrum, I'm fantastic at school or work, but I cannot you know, uh, seek and maintain a romantic relationship, then, okay, a little bit of coaching, some therapy, um, may be helpful to understand what your stumbling blocks are, uh, in terms of your social skills or other things. And you may want to figure out if you can change some of that, um, or find someone who's incredibly understanding and doesn't matter. Um, so that's the other thing too. Uh, I think you should try to change what's needed to change in order to be effective and, and to get your needs met, uh, in this world in terms of pursuing your values. But ultimately, you got to also just find a good fit, right? Like like I was saying with the autism spectrum, they, they tend to stereotypically do better in technical fields. So why bash your head in? And, you know, if you do try to do sales, for instance, if you don't naturally have good social skills and cognitive empathy, you can try your best to level up, but you're never going to be world class versus you may be world class technically. And it's the same thing. Uh, you know, you may want a certain type of man or woman to be your partner. Uh, but if they're not like, you know, super understanding of your particular 
neurotypicalness or your personality, whatever it is, uh, you know, you're just gonna, you're gonna be fighting an uphill battle. So uh, change what you can, but also find environments and people who, um, quite frankly, accept who you are and maybe even reward you and like you for those things. You know, there's a lot of women who like super intellectual guys who like to nerd out a lot about a lot of topics as folks on the spectrum like to. And it's a plus, not a negative. So, you know, uh, pick your pick the hills that you're willing to fight, the battles that you're willing to fight. And then uh, other places, just find low-lying land where, um, you know, your life is just going to be much easier. Classic book. It's a bestseller called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah, it's a great read. I think I read it when I was like 16 years old. It's um, uh, one of the classic sort of business slash personal improvement books. Um, you know, and it, and it, the, the, I think one of the challenges of it, it, it has a lot of traits that like no one disagrees with. I think like one of the seven habits that I recall is being proactive. It's like, okay, I think almost everyone <laughs> agrees that being proactive is a good thing personally and professionally. Um, I don't know, maybe when you're 16, you need to hear that because, you know, you, you want to just like lay low when you have a, when you have a job for the first time and you don't want to mess up. Uh, but I think most adults sort of get that proactiveness is, is sort of important. So um, I think, it, I think the principles are good. I think the problem is like putting into practice, uh, like a lot of business books is the hard part. I do think the the most important principle that I ever took away from that particular book, though, was the matrix, because we talked about a matrix at the beginning of this conversation, of the urgent, important matrix, right? And his insight, which I actually think is a, a important one, is that we spend a lot of time doing things that are urgent but not important because it's just like, you know, hair is on fire, it's the top of your inbox, someone needs a little response, and you're like, sure, uh, I just want to get this out of the way, maybe it doesn't take a lot of time. But if you keep on doing that, just like spending time in your email rather than doing like the big important projects that are not urgent, but they're really important in terms of pushing your company forward, then uh, that's when you're sort of misprioritizing your time and your efforts. And I think we all we all uh, have a tendency of doing this. And so I actually, in fact, have a, a high school buddy who had has um, started a, an app. I think it's literally called Priority Matrix, and it's based on Stephen Covey's little matrix. And instead of doing typical to-do list or task management where, you know, you just come up with your tasks that you need to do and the due dates for them, you have to categorize them in those four quadrants. Is it important and urgent, important, not urgent, uh, urgent, not important, or not important, not urgent. And that helps you bucket those tasks in terms of what to tackle and encourages you to don't spend so much time doing the urgent but not important tasks, spend more time doing the important and not urgent tasks, they need to be relatively balanced in order for you to be the most effective person. So that's the best part of the book, in my opinion. I don't think you need to read the whole book. There's a million summaries of seven habits of highly effective people. I think most business books should be a medium essay that's like 10 pages long. So just read that uh, if you haven't read it before. And more importantly, figure out how to put it into practice because that that's worth uh, uh, a lot more than the reading part of it. We had a question come in uh, from... YouTube last week on the topic of testosterone supplements. The question is, what is Shilajit? Does it actually work as a testosterone supplement? All right, so uh, it feels like every week we get a, a new question about some random herbal testosterone, uh, herbal uh, uh, element or supplement and whether it increases testosterone. Keep them coming. I think they're interesting questions. And I, I always actually like reading the research literature. By the way, that's what I encourage everyone to do 
is is uh, please don't read like random blog articles um, with the exception of people who are like clinician scientists who are actually reviewing the evidence. Read the actual research literature um, uh, because that's what really matters. Because um, here's the problem. People read some random blog article. The blog article is probably sponsored by a supplement company says uh, Shilajit is the next big thing that will boost your testosterone. And then they point to a study and they say, the study said it increases testosterone. Here's the proof. And then you read that and you're like, oh, okay. Published scientific uh, uh, evidence, right? And it's not that they're lying. It's true, but you have to interpret it in context and understand what does a statistically significant increase actually mean, right? So as a scientist, I actually go and read these papers. So first of all, let's talk about what Shilajit is. Uh, it's actually hard to describe uh, because um, people uh, don't really know what it is. It's literally this black stuff stuff that grows on rocks in the Himalayas. Uh, as best as I have read, it's basically like decomposing plant matter that turns into a black mush um, and is like a humus, I believe is it's called. It's like decaying detriment. And they collect it and scrape it off these rocks um, and put it into like some gooey supplement that you can go buy on Amazon and consume. And the claim is that it increases testosterone. Um, and so I tried to look at the research literature. First of all, it's not a lot of literature. So just like we were talking about CBT, where there's probably thousands of studies that, that um, you know, uh, uh, substantiate the evidence for CBT as a psychotherapy, there are very few studies on Shilajit. So first of all, just on the basis of that alone, given that there's not a lot of research literature that supports it, if you find one study that even showed an increase, I would not be convinced to take any supplement because I'm like, that's one study. I wanna see like five studies, 10 studies, uh, and, and do all five or 10 of them show a consistent effect over time in different populations, done differently, sponsored by companies, not sponsored by companies, et cetera. Uh, but when, when there's very few studies, especially done in humans, um, I'm very skeptical. So I did find one decent quality study, I would say. It was published uh, by Pandit et al. 2015 in a reputable journal called Andrologia. Um, and uh, it was uh, testing Shilajit supplementation in uh, relatively healthy volunteers. These are guys between the age of 45 and 55. The good thing about the study is they did had good methodology. This was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial which they gave them 250 uh, milligrams of Shilajit twice a day. So for those who are not familiar with science, basically they gave them pills. Half of them got placebo pills, sugar pills. Half of them got this Shilajit and they nobody knew uh, who was taking what, both the participants and the experimenters. That's why it's called double blind. And then they looked at their levels of hormones. So here's the interesting things about this, um, the findings of this study. Um, they tracked them uh, before and then 30, 60, and 90 days after the supplementation. So here's the weird thing, and this is what makes me a little extra skeptical about the supplement. There is no effect at 30 days or 60 days, but magically at 90 days, three months after they start taking it, they start seeing an effect. Now this is possible or plausible in terms of um, the reason the effect shows up after 30 days is it needs to accumulate into the system. Although I have to say, it kind of sucks to take something and not feel it for three months or not, not uh, be able to show any evidence of it having an effect in terms of your blood work. There are some supplements where that's true. Like a good example is beta alanine, which is an evidence-based um, 
supplement that's ergogenic for sports performance, but you have to take it every single day and has to like saturate within your muscles. And that's why you have to take it for a long ass time. That's why I don't even recommend taking it because most people have to take it like multiple times a day, every day for months to see any effect. Not really worth it. So this shilajit stuff um, uh, did not see any increase, statistically significant increase in total testosterone at 30 days or 60 days, but at 90 days uh, showed a 20% increase. Not very impressive. Free testosterone, no increase at 30 and 60 days, 19% increase at 90 days. So pretty much almost the equivalent of the total in testosterone increase. So why, how is it working? right? If it is even, let's assume that the 20%, it's actually increasing it three months down the line. Um, there was no significant change at LH at any of the time points, which is the typical mechanism of action for, let's say, in clomiphene, a selective estrogen receptor modulator, it works by increasing LH. So it's not working through that HPG axis. Interestingly, they did find an increase in FSH, or what's called follicle-stimulating hormone, at 30, 60, and 90 days. That was probably the most consistent effect of the study. So uh, this is a generalization, but uh, LH is more responsible for the increase in testosterone, while FSH is more responsible for the increase in fertility. And so you're not seeing an increase in LH very much. You are seeing an increase in FSH. And they also found uh, an increase in DHEA sulfate, which is kind of a precursor hormone to testosterone. And that also increased, uh, I think about 31% at 90 days. So what the hell is shilajit doing uh, uh, in aggregate? Shilajit is probably in some, for, and we don't really understand how, it's increasing DHEA sulfate, which is a precursor of testosterone. It bumps it up a little bit, 20% at 90 days, although weirdly has no effects prior to 90 days. So I would say, as a testosterone-boosting supplement, while it is statistically significant, it is clean, clinically meaningless. 20% boost, you're not going to notice any difference. A 20% boost is basically the equivalent of sleeping about an extra 1.5 hours a night. So if you're sleeping seven hours a night and then you sleep eight and a half hours, you're going to see the same increase and you're going to feel a lot better than taking Shilajit. Now, there is one other study that I found that was looking at... Um, uh, Shilajit, uh, they found a very similar increase in testosterone, it's 23.5%. So again, not very impressive. They did find a better increase in sperm parameters. There's a 38% increase in sperm mobility, which is how the sperm moves, and a 61% increase in total sperm count, which is actually decent. So my conclusion from this is Shilajit may be beneficial for fertility. Like if you're literally trying to get your wife pregnant, it may improve some sperm parameters, but as a testosterone boosting supplement, kind of weak. And then finally, I actually don't recommend it at all because this is the big problem with supplements and especially herbal supplements is, remember, this is this is rock humus. It's literally the stuff that's scraped off these rocks um, that, that grows and rocks are often metals. So there's been a bunch of um, uh, testing of shilajit supplements and some of them, but not all of them, have actually tested very high in heavy metals like lead and stuff that's literally toxic and poisonous to your system. And so for a potential 20% increase in total and free testosterone, you're gonna risk significant toxic, heavy metal toxicity because these supplements are totally unregulated. I think it's actually a terrible idea. So there's literally an, uh, an article that's done by uh, Self Hacked, um, which is you know 
uh, well scientifically written and, and um, you know, blog. And they literally, when they review Shilajit as a supplement, says, use extreme caution when taking this. And I don't know about you, but I'm not going to take something that requires extreme caution. Uh, and it's very risky to take in terms of toxicity with very little potential benefit. That's why I'm just such a much bigger fan of pharmaceutical drugs. People, even though they, they think, oh, natural is better, natural is better. Not from a toxicity standpoint, at least when a pharmaceutical drug, you know you're not getting heavy metal toxicity. It's always tested for it. There's one ingredient and that one ingredient has been shown in order to get FDA approval to be a prescription uh, drug, at least for some indication that it's effective versus legit. Uh, if it actually was effective, they'd probably isolate the active ingredient and turn it into a drug, as I mentioned in last week's podcast. So net net, um, and I, there's some shady companies out there shilling, selling Shilajit, by the way, as part of their testosterone boosting stack, um, in addition to their pharmaceuticals for the folks that don't really need the pharmaceuticals or TRT. Um, the evidence is very poor. Uh, I do not recommend it and you're risking heavy metal toxicity. So just like we talked about Tonkat Ali and Longiforia, um, uh, that whatever that Nigerian shrub was that Dr. Amory Huberman talked about in last week's podcast, I do not recommend any of these herbal supplements. Basically, Dr. Cam's rule of thumb, if you can buy it over the counter as a supplement or an herb, it does not do anything to boost your testosterone in any clinically meaningful way that you will feel. So don't waste your time. In contrast, we had someone uh, literally an hour ago who's, uh, uh, this is not my words, his words, um, uh, Chris was one of our uh, Maximus participants, publicly tweeted on t on uh, Twitter uh, about how he's on the Maximus protocol. And he's, by the way, he's on the lowest dose of our protocol. We're, we're purposely very conservative. Um, it had a 2.8 increase, 2.8x increase in terms of his total testosterone. Now, I don't know what his baseline was, but let's assume it's 100, right? Like a nice average number. That would mean that his uh, his after levels are like 280. That is phenomenal, right? So as opposed to a shilajit, where if you started at 100 and got a 20% increase, that would be 120. So going from 100 to 120, clinically meaning less, you're not gonna notice a difference. Going from 100 to 280, huge difference, and that, that you will feel. And I think he's he literally said something like, I feel I feel a thousand times better. Right now, obviously, he's being a little, uh, you know, uh, over the top, but that's what we're talking about. Why waste your time with these with these shitty supplements uh, that uh, don't work uh, versus being on a protocol where uh, we will lab test your levels so you don't have to believe us, the third party lab that's that's testing your levels and show you that it works. And and you also have confidence because there's a bunch of published research that shows that uh, on average it doubles your levels, and that's what we're finding in our clinical. Um, you know, our, our clinical experience as well. So great question. Keep them coming. Uh, but yeah, Shilajit uh, should, should have stayed on the rocks in the Himalayas instead of in your stomach. Someone wrote in a question. I'm not that great at recognizing and sifting through people's particularly insidious and office politique behavior. I picked up chaos monkeys and a lot of the content is resonating with me and it feels like I've been through some of the same shit. Any tips on how I can get better at recognizing Toxic, Machiavellian, sly, cunning people in the workplace. Um, great question. Yes. Um, so uh, I have a whole article about this. It's called Anatomy of an Asshole. Um, and I think I literally had to change the title to Anatomy of a Workplace Jerk because some place that I published it didn't like the word asshole. 
which I thought was hilarious. And, you know, Bob Sutton, it wasn't even my term. It was, it was a term from Professor Bob Sutton, who's a professor of business um, at Stanford Business School, um, I think in the organizational behavioral uh, department. And he wrote a, a best-selling book called The No Asshole Rule. And uh, he has a whole HPR article that he published afterwards because a lot of colleagues were like, oh, why did you use the word asshole? And he's like, look, it's the best word to describe behavior that you are very familiar with, right? And I talk about this in the article too. I'm like, no clinician, no doctor obviously uses the term asshole. It's not a term that we use in psychology. Uh, so the, my article basically argued what people commonly refer to as assholes is really dark triad behavior. It's narcissism, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, or what we call antisocial personality disorder. In fact, you use the word Machiavellianism, so you probably recognize that. So um, I would I'd recommend that you read the article and understand those three archetypes of dark triad. And once you start to, to understand them, you start recognizing, like there's good pattern recognition, right? I'll give you three examples. So like a uh, very like, you know, um, um, like antisocial personality, psychopath is like, you know, Christian Bale, right? In American Psycho. Like that's the classic movie portrayal of a psychopath. He's like cold, has intact cognitive empathy, but no affective empathy, does not feel, has no remorse, etc. Um, you know, it's kind of like a machine. Uh, those kinds of folks, you'll recognize them in the workplace. Um, and they're rare. It's less than 1% of the total population, but up to 5% of CEOs are actually psychopaths. Um, and so you, you do see them. Um, the narcissists are very apparent. Um, you, you can you can pick your favorite presidential leader as a uh, example of, of a narcissism. Um, and so that's very easy to spot, right? Because they're, they're, they're the star of their reality television show or movie. And you are just a supporting cast member. That's the best analogy for narcissism. Uh, when you, when the narcissist talks to you, you don't feel like you're in the room. You feel like you're being talked at, not with, uh, and you can almost fall asleep because they wouldn't even notice whether you're responding or not. Um, so they're very easy to spot. The Machiavellians are the hardest because like I said, Machiavellians in the article are the most, um, least born, most made. It's the least genetic. Psychopaths are very genetic. You're, you're born a psychopath or you go through early childhood trauma, but you don't really like, you can't kind of choose to become a psychopath because it's hard to turn off how you feel. But a lot of people can become Machiavellian. Those are the hardest. That's like the Frank Underwood, if to use sort of a acting a celebrity uh, analogy. And I think that just comes from experience. And if you're not particularly good at recognizing them, I would try to make friends with people in the workplace who are. Um, that's actually where we're having workplace buddies who look out for you and are better at understanding people, understanding politics, can tell you, hey, watch out for that person. Or I don't, you know, I don't have a good feeling. I don't have good intuition about that person. And that's a really good heuristic, by the way. Um, Paul Graham, right, who I mentioned earlier, who's one of the founders of YC, talked about how Jessica, his kind of like co-founder, co-partner, uh, was just better intuitively at people. And so he would almost lean on her when he was trying to suss out someone because uh, she was just her, her kind of pattern recognition was fantastic. And so if you're not good at it, I would rely on someone else's pattern recognition and pattern matching at first, and then you can train almost your pattern matching algorithm on theirs, right? Because if you're like, I think that person is safe or a good person, they're like, no, 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 totally Machiavellian. You want to watch out for them. You're like, okay, what are the signs and symptoms? Why are they coming to that conclusion? But I'm not. And so you can basically train up or level up by having an expert. So uh, that's what I would actually do.
uh, in order to learn. It's like like mentorship or almost like shadowing someone who is very who has a very accurate intuition. I always say, by the way, that intuition is nothing more than accurate pattern recognition. Someone's intuition has just become very good and very trained over time at seeing it. Like, like I said, for instance, psychopaths are very rare. I think I've met like two in my life. And so my pattern recognition from psychopaths uh, is better than it was when it was, I had never met any. It's, it's better now, but compared to like a forensic psychologist who works in jails and runs into people with uh, psychopaths who have antisocial personality disorder all the time, their pattern recognition is going to be even better than mine because they just have more experience with them. I would say, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, the narcissist or Machiavellians, I probably run into a lot more of those given I work with executives. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you can, you can learn that over time. Great uh, series of questions uh, and uh, catch us next week, Thursday at six o'clock. You can feel free to sub submit your questions ahead of time. I know there's a couple of people on YouTube. Um, you can join our Discord. Just reach out to Victor or reach out to us on any of our social media channels. We'll explain how to get on the Discord if you want to do a live chat next week. All right, everyone. Thank you and have an amazing evening.